Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus, and so we want to get you in the habit of opening it up with us every week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis 43. And if you don't have a Bible, we've put black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those and turn to somewhere between page 34, 35. It's in that range. Page 34 or 35, we're going to be in Genesis 43, really focusing on Genesis 44 is where most of the story is coming from, but we're going to kind of back up to read a little bit from 43 today as well. We're calling the series The Joseph Stories, God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World. And there are a lot of good lessons for us to learn here. Uh, God is at work in our dysfunctional world, just like God was at work in Joseph's dysfunctional world. And oftentimes the the trials, the tests, the difficulties that we go through can make us feel like everything's spinning out of control, um, that the world is broken, that, that God is broken, or maybe God's not even there. We, we don't know what to think sometimes. But in these stories, we're reminded again and again that God is there, He is faithful, we can trust Him, and He is at work. So this week, we're calling it Character Refined. Character Refined. We're seeing the refining of the character of the brothers of Joseph but also specifically Judah. He kind of plays as the main representative of the brothers in a lot of the story. And as we look at the word or, or concept refined, I'm drawing this from a word that Joseph used previously where he said to the brothers that he is going to test them. Do you remember? He said, I'm going to test you and see if I can trust you, whether you're spies or not. And so because Joseph said it, and because it's a common theme in the Bible, I, th- I think what we see played out here is their testing. Now, testing is a unique word in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word bachan, and it is often associated with the testing of silver or gold. And so that's why I use the word refine. Testing doesn't just see if you are pure. The testing process actually makes us more pure. Does that make sense? The refining process doesn't just tell you whether or not silver or gold is pure. It actually makes the silver and gold more pure. So if you look through Scripture, if you do a word search on this, you're going to see again and again this concept of testing, of testing our hearts and our character. It goes along with the image of the melting and purifying, the refining of silver and gold. A great key text for this is Zechariah 17.3. Zechariah 17.3 says, Just as the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, in that same way, the Lord tests men's hearts. The question for you and I is, is do we want God to melt us down like that, right? Like, Do we want to go through that experience? I did a lot of searching this week because if you're like me, I don't have a lot of experience refining silver and gold. It's not something I've ever done before. So I did a lot of research, and I found out there are three principal ways that you can refine gold. Three principal ways. One is the ancient way of melting it in a furnace. But we've got a couple of modern ways we can do that as well. We can also refine gold by shooting electricity through it or by burning it with acid. All three of those sound like pretty negative experiences, right? Um, I looked up online. uh, One of the ways you can do it with, with modern stuff, right, is you can collect electronic parts that use gold for the connectors, right? A real common one that we're, we're aware of or that you've seen before is a SIM card. You know what a SIM card is? It's a little card that's like the brain of your phone. You switch it out if you need to change phones or whatever. Well, it's got a little bit, it's got gold flakes on there to help, you know, conduct the signal and the electricity. And so if you collect like a whole bucket of those, 
you could boil it in acid for about 14 hours, and you could have yourself some gold, okay? There are YouTube videos on it, but I have to warn you, you got to be careful, right? Because the acid could kill you, the fumes from the acid could kill you, the boiling it overnight on the stove could kill you, right? It's a very dangerous process, um, but you can see how it takes place. And what I want you to understand is Proverbs tells us that's how God works in our life. Psalms tells us that's how God works in our life. Zechariah tells us that's how God works in our life. I can remember as a kid growing up in the 80s, um, we used to sing a lot of songs about it too. Any of you been Christians for a long time? You remember there were songs about like being purified like gold and silver and refined, right? We used to sing about that. I think we don't sing about it as often anymore now because we're just soft, right? Like we're like, we don't want to do that. Um, but this story is about Joseph's brothers being refined. The Bible says the process is just like how it's done with silver and gold. It's a melting or an electrocuting or a burning with acid, right? It's a painful process but it produces good character. So I want to back up a little bit to kind of pick up some of the story from last week. So I'm going to read from chapter 43, verse 11. Okay, so let's start chapter 43, verse 11. It says, uh, and just to catch you up even before that, remember they were tested by Joseph. He says, I want you to go get Benjamin, the youngest brother, and bring bring him back. Then I'll know you're not lying and you're not spies. They tell Jacob, their dad, and he's like, no way. Then they run out of food. Then Judah offers himself, and then we've got this part. So Genesis 43, verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your older brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, make ready, for the men are to dine with me. At noon, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were very afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we've brought the money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put our money in our sacks. Verse 23, he replied, Joseph's steward replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. We'll stop there. Um, I want to pray for a minute. Before I pray, I'm just going to kind of give you an idea where we're headed. There's a refining and testing process that's going on here. Joseph said it himself in the previous section. He said, I'm going to test you. It's a repeated theme throughout the scripture. And as we see this testing take place, we see three kinds of tests unfolding. First, we see that he's going to refine them with fear and grace. You'll see this little dance between their fear that we just read about 
and yet they're offered grace when they're so afraid. So we see fear and grace working together. Then we're going to see that they are refined by empathy. They're going to begin to feel the tragedy that their father felt. So they're going to be refined by empathy. And then finally, we're going to see them refined to the point of being willing to make a sacrifice themselves, being refined for sacrifice. So let me pray for us, and then we'll unfold the story some more. God, we thank you for your word. We do come trusting that you are good. You've provided us with direction, with insight here that speaks of your goodness. And so, Father, we offer our pain and the difficulty that we're going through. Many of us are in the midst of difficult tests and trials right now, and it's painful. And so we we pray, as we've seen in Scripture, that if there is any way, you would take away the pain. But God, we also entrust ourselves to your will, that you are good and you are gracious and you are the same God who worked in these ancient times, who is still at work today. And you can turn the pain in our lives for good. You can refine us. You can make us more like your son, Jesus. So we pray that you would make that so, that you would be honored. Help us to listen. Meet us here. Comfort us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a, it's a difficult process. No matter what process you're going through, it's a difficult process to be refined. It's always painful. Again, the three ways that gold is refined is either a furnace being burned, melted, uh, electrocution, or acid, right? And, and none of us are going to sign up for that. And so what I want you to know is that God is gracious, and even though you're going through pain, the story continues to draw us back to, but you've got a God who loves you, and he's revealed himself in that way to us through Jesus. And so if you're in the midst of that pain right now, that trial right now, it might be so painful for you to think, well, is, is God doing this to me, right? And I would ask you to suspend that question for a moment and let the story wash over you. I would just say, pray that God would show up in a big way through the story today. And the first thing that we see is as we unfold the story, that God seems to be refining them. And Joseph, as God's agent in the story, is refining them by fear and grace. So we picked up the fear part last week. Uh, He was accusing them of being spies. He was helping them come to terms with their guilt. They had this in awareness like, oh no, we've sinned and now it's coming upon us. But in the story, that fear that they have is met with grace. And it's a really interesting combination that we see unfold. And so I want to focus in here on this first little uh, kind of indication that they're afraid in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again, chapter 43, verse 18. It says, and the men were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. They're terrified. And part of the trigger is he he invited them to his house, right? So to set the scene, it's like they show up to some kind of public area, right? Some kind of public place where people can buy and sell grain and they can report in and talk to Joseph again and his, his stewards and his administration And they're told there, oh, you're going to be taken to Joseph's private residence. And so when you're afraid, even when you're shown grace, it makes you more afraid. Have you ever noticed that before? Like when you're guilty, when you're guilty and you're afraid you're going to be made to pay for it, someone who you know you've wronged 
and you feel this burden of guilt, and then they're nice to you, you're like, oh, they're, they're trying to kill me, right? They're out to get me, right? That's, that's the kind of feeling they're feeling. So they're afraid. He's helped, he's helped bring the guilt to the surface. They still don't know it's actually Joseph, right? But they have this sense that they are going to pay for their sins. So they're going afraid. They're invited into his house to be blessed, to be shown grace, and they're still afraid. They're, they're terrified. They're like, oh, we're being, being brought off to the side, right? Like we're being taken into a dark alley where he can uh, kill us and take our stuff and nobody will know. So it says they're very afraid. So they go up to the steward and they're like, hey, um, just so you know, the extra money was in our sacks and we didn't know, we don't know who put it back in the sacks, you know, and now we're bringing it back to you. So they're trying to clear themselves with the steward. And we'll skip down to verse 23. Look at what the steward says. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Another translation to the I received your money is I have received payment. God has been gracious. I have received the payment that I need. This is a beautiful picture of what we believe is central to the gospel. And that is we come before a holy God afraid. We have sinned. We owe him payment and we, there's no way we can make it. It's a, it's a cosmic payment of rebellion against a perfect and holy God. And he says, through his son Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins, I've provided for you. The God of your fathers, the God of grace, is giving you peace. Payment has been made. Do you believe it? Now, it seems to calm them down in the moment, but we're not sure how much they're believing, how much they're trusting. What's really weird in this story is that this is not how Egyptians talked about God. So it's, it's really a yellow flag, a red flag. It's really supposed to be a, a big, hey, pay attention kind of moment, right? Because that is not, you know, we've got all these ancient books and writings and archaeology. We can look at how they talked about their gods. This is not how they talked about their gods. And so this Egyptian steward who works for Joseph is saying, hey, peace. God is gracious. He's made payment for you. Everything is going to be okay. And so the story continues to unfold. Payment has been made. Then he brought out Simeon to them. So now their brother has returned. He hasn't been murdered. Verse 24, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. So now they're getting their stuff. Remember, Jacob said, hey, bring some, some balm and some myrrh. And you know, they were sending pistachios and special gifts to give to him. So they're getting their present out. Verse 26, it says, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves. This is a weird word. Prostate is a body part. Prostrate means bow down. Okay. Sorry, I had to say that embarrassing body part, but, um, but it's like one of those words we get mixed up about, right? So prostrate is just another way of saying like they're, they're literally bowing down to him. They're showing him proper deference. It's not like worshiping him like, oh, you're a God. It's just that's the proper way to show respect in this culture. And so this is what they're doing. They're, they're really, in a sense, going overboard about it, just really trying to make sure he understands that they are lowly and he's in control and they're kind of fearful. They're bowing down. And then verse 28, they said, yeah, he's, he's well. They bowed down. Verse 29, he lifted up his eyes and he saw, talking about Joseph, saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. So remember, there are like four women 
who have had these 12 children, right? So they're all half-brothers, sons of Jacob. They all have different mamas. Joseph and Benjamin are the sons of the favorite wife. And so they're the favorite sons. And so there's this extra connection there, right? Like they have the same, the same mom. And so he sees Benjamin, who is now the youngest one in the family. And he says, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he says, God be gracious to you, my son. So now we have Joseph speaking the same kind of words that his steward had, had spoken, right? There's no category for this with the Egyptian gods of the gods being gracious Here, he's saying, yeah, your God is gracious. May he be gracious to you, my son. He's speaking these words of grace over Benjamin and recognizing him. Verse 30, then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. This keeps happening in the story, right? He keeps becoming overcome. He's trying to be tough with them. He's trying to play the role of a judge and elicit these tests and this refining, but then he comes He gets overwhelmed with emotion. He has to run out and weep. And he cleans up and he comes back out. Verse 32, they served him. Oh, verse 31, excuse me. He washed his face, came out, controlling himself now. He said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph being served by himself, that's kind of like king protocol, right? So he sits at a special table. He's really important, and the rest of us are not important. So that's kind of what's happening there. But then the Egyptians and the Hebrews can't eat together because it says it was an abomination to them, right? And we're not sure exactly how much of this is like uh, racism of identity and how much of it is just they're grossed out by the way that people eat in different cultures, you know? Uh, racism is, is present in every culture. I don't know if you know this, but it's not just America that has racism. Like if you travel across the world, every country in the world struggles with racism, right? So we see evidence of it here, but it could be more like, like, well, they eat weird food and we don't eat weird food. It kind of grosses us out. We don't want to sit at the same table. You know, we're not sure exactly what it is, um, but we're assuming it's, I think it's safe to say there's some level of racism in play here and a kind of separation of the different tribes and different people. But there's a really interesting way that the, service, uh, the food is actually served. Look at verse 33. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. So they've been seated in birth order. Um, so again, it's like, this is mysterious. Like, how did he know what order we're born in? You know, like, it's just some, some mysterious, strange things taking place here. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. They're having a good time. They're eating a lot. They're drinking a lot. They're receiving grace, even though they're afraid. First thing that's really interesting is they were served from Joseph's table. And this was not the normal way to serve in that day and time. So you read commentaries, they, they read, they would explain that there's something symbolic happening here, right? Uh, the symbolism is like, Here's Joseph, the mean judge that wants to extract payment from you, and he's giving grace from his table. He's giving you like overflowing abundance. Again, it's a symbol of what God is like. God is a just judge who could extract payment and death from us, but instead he gives us grace. He feeds us from his table. It's, it's reminiscent of a lot of different symbols throughout Scripture, right? We, we talk about communion as the Lord's table, um, there are all these Old Testament feasts that were feasts around 
the table, that are supposed to remind us of God's graciousness to us. We're told that when we go to heaven, heaven is going to be like this wedding supper, right? We're going to be sitting at the Lord's table enjoying this great feast. So we've got the symbolism here, but the really peculiar one is that he gives five times as much food to Benjamin, right? This is part of the test. The test is not just seeing how they handle grace and kindness when they deserve something worse. The test is also a test of of jealousy, right? We've also got the test of jealousy because remember what brought out in them their bad behavior and their meanness and their hating of Joseph? How did, how did that come out? Well, it's because favoritism was showed, shown to, to Joseph and he was given more or he was given better. And so here Joseph is replaying that for them. So this is the refining. He's, he's setting this up to see, hey, have they learned their lesson? So I'm going to give extra to Benjamin and see if they react in jealousy. See if they twitch, you know? Um, I, I mentioned this in the early service too. It's not really in my notes, but I've just been thinking about this because I do premarital counseling and then also just kind of listen to stuff about um, hiring and firing, you know? Uh, in a lot of different categories of life, it's really helpful to put people through different experiences and see how they react, right? And so uh, when you're hiring someone, if, if you're hiring people and you're interviewing people, you don't just want to sit at a table and interview them But it's helpful, too, to see how they react in different situations, right? So Joseph is setting up this test to see how they react. If if you're going to marry someone and you're dating someone, don't just always have fun eating at the best restaurants and going to movies, right? But see how they react in different situations. It's helpful to see the character of someone refined by seeing them in different scenarios. And so that's part of what Joseph is doing here. He's saying, okay, I'm going to see if the jealousy thing is still there. If this is still eating them alive, I'm going to give five times the portions to Benjamin. And it seems that they pass the test. It seems that everything goes well. It says um, they ate, they drank, they were merry with them, they had a good time. Everything was good. Now, what's the application of this? Well, I think there's a really helpful application in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 23 warns us. Proverbs 23 says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. That's pretty aggressive language, right? Uh, so let me do a little interpretation. It's poetic, so I don't think it means, you know, kill yourself. It's just saying, like, slow down, right? Put the brakes on if you're given to too much appetite. Saying, if you have this opportunity to go eat a meal with an important person, with a ruler, slow down. Don't give yourself over to your appetite. Proverbs 23 goes on and says, Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. So Proverbs is saying this, this is always a test, in a sense. When you're offered great blessings, are you like, ah, let me take it, right? Like, do you go after it desperately? Or do you have a sense of security and self-control? The way I would translate this into New Testament language is that there's one of two ways that we face life. One of two ways that we face the combination of fear and grace that life throws at us, you can face that as a spiritual orphan who's desperate and has to steal and push other people out of the way to get what you want. Or you can face it as an adopted son and daughter of God who faces every opportunity saying, I'm well taken care of. I'm not desperate. I don't need to grab, but I can relax because God is in control and I trust him. I think that's the New Testament way to think about this. When when you are faced with incredible blessing or fearful situations, where does your heart run? 
Do you recognize that you are safe in Christ, that you are adopted by God, that he loves you? Or you're like, no, this, this universe is out of control and I've got to push people out of the way and I've got to take what's coming to me, right? Now, this hits hard, hard uh, for me. This hits close to home because um, just the way my metabolism is wired, I, I grew up kind of always hungry, right? <laughs> like I was always hungry. So this is always a temptation. Like if you invite me to a wedding, I'm the person that kind of wants to take the sandwiches and stick them in my pocket. Like that's just kind of that's how I'm wired, you know, this... This constant hunger pang in my stomach tells me, like, I got to take it when it's free, right? Like, I got to take the food whenever it's offered to me. And so I have to remind myself, no, God, God will meet my needs. It, it's going to be okay. Um, when I was younger, I ate a whole lot more than I can now. Thankfully, it's slowing down. I just can't eat as much. One of my favorite places to eat when I was a kid was Freebirds or when I was a college kid. Anybody go to Freebirds? It's right down the block. I love Freebirds. This is their super monster burrito. It's like 20 feet tall. It is enormous, right? So I used to love the challenge as a 20-year-old of like, can I eat a 10-pound burrito, right? And I could usually make it happen. Now I'm an old guy and I eat salads there all the time. Um, but, but think about that. Like in your own life, uh, when are these moments when you're offered, you know, something good and wonderful and rich and bountiful, do you just go crazy, right? Because you're like, I'm desperate and I'm never taken care of and I never get what I want, so I got to take advantage of this, right? At work, with, with food, in relationships. Like, do you find yourself pinging from scarcity to, oh, now there's abundance, so I just got to grab all that I can? Or, or do you have a composure of recognizing, you know what? God is in control. I'm taken care of. I'm all right. It's going to be fine. There's a spiritual peace that we can have. And again, it, it seems like the brothers have grown now. It seems like there's some spiritual transformation that the refining process is showing who they really are and that they're no longer desperate and jealous, that they're no longer racked with fear and pain and wondering if they're going to be taken care of, but they're more settled. They're trusting God. Let's look at the next a refining test that they're put through. This one is being refined by empathy. They're being refined by empathy. And this is one of those weird touchy-feely words. So if you're not a touchy-feely person, I just want to apologize. Hey, I'm sorry. Okay. But I'm going to try to challenge you to grow in your practice of empathy. And empathy and sympathy, I think, are overlapping concepts. We see them kind of used interchangeably in Scripture and as the English language has evolved, it's kind of been used in different ways throughout the history of the English language. But empathy is generally being able to feel what someone else feels, right? And so some people just do that better than other people, right? Like your feelings are just a little closer to the surface. So it's just a little easier for you to feel what other people feel. And then some of you um, have this really practical skill of not feeling that much, right? Because you can roll through life a little more peacefully if you're not always feeling what other people feel. But I think the scripture encourages us to feel what other people feel. Uh, and so empathy is that kind of connecting, feeling what they feel. Sympathy is, is more like than reacting out of it, right? Like showing kindness to someone in their pain. So they're both overlapping. One is more focused on the feeling, empathy. The other is focused more on what you do with it, sharing a feeling in return. So I think this picture, this would be more like sympathy, putting your arm around someone, hey, it's okay, speaking words of kindness, encouraging someone, kind of being there with them, which is definitely a biblical value. Um, and then I struggle to find, you know, you can't really show what you're feeling in your head. There's a symbolic picture I, f I found here. This is supposed to be empathy. Someone came up with this. It's like two brains merging. It's not telepathy, okay? It's empathy, different thing. Um, but this is kind of being able to share what the other person's feeling. And I think the way you can develop this 
is by listening and paying attention and slowing down to care. Like, I think that's really where it starts. And so we see in the story, the brothers now start to empathize with their father, Jacob. Because when Jacob had his son taken from them, Joseph, he tore his clothes. That's the ancient world's way of expressing grief and heartache. Like, oh no, I'm broken heart. I want to die, right? They would tear their clothes. And now we see the brothers doing the same thing in this story. So we're going to read 44 verses 1 through 17. Then he commanded, this Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So he's doing the same thing he did before, right? He's giving them the money back again. Verse 2, and then put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light and the men were sent away with their donkeys, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? So he's setting them up clearly, right? We can talk another time about, hey, is it okay for someone to do a whole fake thing to scare people and accuse them? Like, okay, we can talk about that another day. I'm not even going to deal with that today, right? But here he's definitely setting them up. And I think it is for the purpose of refining and testing them and bringing this stuff to the surface. So the servant runs after them. Uh, verse 5, he says, this is what you're supposed to say. Is that not uh, the cup from which my Lord drinks? And by this, he that he practices divination. You've done evil in doing this. So in the ancient world, it's very common to practice divination by mixing oil, water, wine, different ways. You know, they would like watch the different fluids dance on the surface in a bowl or in a fancy cup. Um, we don't. We don't think, we have no reason to think that Joseph actually is practicing the magic arts of the Egyptians, right? Uh, again, we believe it's just part of the setup. We don't know for sure, but that would just be my assumption because Joseph seems to be faithful and to be walking with God. So verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to them, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. They're like, no way. Verse 8, behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Verse 9, this is a key verse. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. They're like, no way. They're very confident. We didn't do this. Remember before we found some money, we even brought it back to you. We're not going to steal money from you. If you find someone with the fancy cup, they should die. The rest of us will be your slaves. So they, they're so sure that this hasn't happened that they're offering an extreme price, right? They're giving everything in a sense. They're saying, you can kill that one and the rest of us will be your slaves. Now the steward replies, verse 10, let it be as you say. Now this is tricky in the Hebrew. I think what it means in the Hebrew is I looked at a lot of different commentaries here as he's saying, well, that's, that is the way it should be, but I'm not going to make it that way, right? So it's, it's kind of confusing in English. Here in the English it says, let it be as you say, but I think really he's like, that's the way it should be. And then he goes on and says, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So he's kind of like saying, well, yeah, what you said could be the way it is, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to just take, take this guy as a slave. The rest of you are free, which is interesting because that's part of the test too, right? Part of the test is, are they going to feel heartache over losing Benjamin? Or are they just going to go, hey, it's not my problem. He said, I'm free. I can go, right? And so the test continues to unfold. And verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack and he searched, beginning with the eldest 
and ending with the youngest. So it's slow, no cup, no cup, no cup. Keeps going, brother by brother. And then ending with the youngest, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So this is a 20-year transformation, right? 20 years ago, they're the ones that caused the pain and they didn't tear their clothes, but Jacob tore his clothes, right? They caused the heartache of Jacob. Now, 20 years later, when this thing has fallen upon them, this test, this refining opportunity, they tear their clothes because they can feel it now. They can experience what Jacob was experiencing with Joseph and what Jacob is going to experience with the loss of Benjamin. Do you see that transition? This is one of the greatest gifts that God can give us. And often, you guys, we have the choice if we're going to participate in this test or not. I mean, it seems here that God is moving through Joseph to kind of press this onto them. But a lot of times you have the opportunity to go free, right? They're told, you can go free. Who cares? You're, you don't, you're not guilty. But they, they feel it. And I think we have to cultivate this in our lives. It's not, uh, it's not automatic, right? Empathy isn't automatic. As I said, there is this kind of sense of temperaments where some of you wear your feelings more on your sleeve than others, and some of you can feel what people are feeling more than others. And really, that's, that's not the whole thing, right? Really, it's about cultivating a, am I going to enter into other people's tragedy? Am I going to recognize the cost and the pain that other people are going through? And the way this is described in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 12. Classic passage in Romans chapter 12. This is what we are to do, right? You're like, okay, Dave, what, what do I do? If you're one of those non-touchy-feely people, you're just like, okay, I don't, I don't know what I do. What are the steps I'm supposed to take? And Paul gives the church clear steps in Romans 12. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Are you willing to do that? It's just a thing, he says. Just do it, church. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He goes on in Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another, right? He's connecting the dots here. If you can be happy when other people are happy and you can be sad when other people are sad, that's going to help you to live in harmony with other human beings. He says, do not be haughty. It's a fancy word for proud. Don't be proud. Don't be too proud for this. Don't be too proud to enter into the pain and the joy of other human beings. As Christians, we talk about this again and again. We're called to live in community with one another. We're called to share burdens with one another. And yes, at a surface level, it might be easier for some than others, but this is a practice we're called to do. It's not about how easy it is. It's like, hey, someone's happy. I'm going to go be happy with them, right? Hey, someone's sad. I'm going to go be sad with them. I shared with y'all before, I'm not very good at crying, right? So like in a real literal sense, weeping with them. If you come weeping to me, it's going to be hard for me to like push tears out of my eyeballs, okay? But I'm going to sit. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to try to listen to why you are sad. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to be sad with you. I'll pray with you. I'll recognize the seriousness of it. But I think that's what he's talking about, right? He's saying, slow down, pay attention. Don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I want to connect the dots here. I think one of the big reasons we don't do this is because we're too proud to do it. 
we think we're too good to feel the crazy feelings of our crazy friends, right? I know I struggled with that a lot as a young man. Because I really built a lot of my kind of who I am identity on, I'm not going to get too upset about things, right? If you know me, I'm a pretty like even keel guy, right? And I put a lot of stock in like, that, that's a really helpful way to live. I'm going to be peaceful and not get upset. But if you're going to be in relationship with other people, the Bible says you should enter in with them. You should understand why they are upset. You should have some level of empathy and sympathy. And we see the brothers living this out uh, with their father. They're finally feeling what he feels. Verse 13 again, they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Right? They were told you can leave, but they came back in. This is a beautiful picture. Again, the movement here is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. He was sitting in the perfection of heaven, Philippians chapter 2, and he left the perfection of heaven and he came into our city. He entered into our pain. He lived as a human being. He suffered in all the ways that we've suffered. And he did that for you and for me. It's a true picture of both empathy and sympathy. So it says, I go back into the city, uh, pick up the story in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Verse 17. But he said, Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Again, they're given the opportunity to go free. But they're staying because they feel the pain of the heartache of what Jacob has gone through. You're going to be given opportunity after opportunity to just do your own thing, especially in our culture. Our culture is built on individualism, which there's a lot of good that comes out of that. But because of that, our culture is structured in such a way that we are all told and encouraged to live our lives in isolation from other people. But the scripture says we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens, right? Like if your friend is sad, you're supposed to be sad with them. If your friend is happy, you're supposed to be happy with them. And society will say, no, you can go free. No, go do your own thing. Go listen to your own music. Go drive your own car. Go sit in your own room, right? Live separately. God calls us to care and to be involved. And this, this refining by empathy, actually being able to feel the heartache of Jacob brings out the last step. And here we see that they're refined into sacrifice. We see Judah speaking up and offering himself as a sacrifice for others. Refined into sacrifice. So we'll look at verses 18 through 34, and I'm just going to summarize verses 18 through 29, and then we're going to start reading at verse 30. 18 through 29, what we see is that Judah recounts the whole story again. So Judah is actually inviting Joseph to empathize with Jacob as well. So Judah and the brothers just felt the same heartache that Jacob's going to feel. They're like, oh, this is terrible. It's such a tragedy, right? Their lives are, are bound together, and Jacob's going to be so heartbroken to lose Benjamin. He's sharing this whole long, elaborate story with Joseph. And so again, this is part of the practice of empathy is actually listening and paying attention to other people's stories. 
So Judas is, uh, Judah is sharing the story. And then verse 30 says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, your father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Saying, this is a pledge that I made to my father already, and now it's all going to fall apart. Verse 33, he says, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So here what Judah is saying is, let me stay. Let me stay. He's saying, let your servant stay instead of the boy. He's saying, take me and set the boy free. Take me instead. Let me be the sacrifice and let the boy go free. And I think this purposefully is to remind us of the true character of love that God is trying to conform us and refine us into. Uh, one of the places that this comes up is in Romans eight twenty eight and 29, where it, it says that, man, hard things happen in our life, but we can consider all these things, all these difficulties that we are going through, these are all beautiful opportunities for us to trust in the greater sovereignty of God, because God is conforming us to the image of a son. And, and we see this being lived out in Judah. Now, I'll remind you, last week uh, we talked about this. Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. A couple of chapters, Jacob Israel is going to give his blessing to the boys, and he's going to say prophetically to Judah, through you, through your tribes, the kings are going to come. And so that's the line that we see in the New Testament. It's so important. Jesus comes from that tribe, from that line, from the line of Judah. So we see here Judah foreshadowing, showing us what Jesus is going to be like. Again and again in the Old Testament, we have, as I've described it, you know, junior saviors, junior heroes that are just imperfect, broken pictures of what Jesus is going to be like as the perfect hero, as the perfect savior. And here's another instance of that. And so we have to reflect on Jesus, the one who offers himself as the sacrifice before the heavenly father to take our place. The one who says, take me as payment and let your children go free. So we can reflect on the cross. The cross in Christianity is the picture, is the symbol of Jesus dying in our place as the sacrifice who takes our place. He was nailed to the cross. He was beaten. He's whipped. He died a gruesome death. And the New Testament unpacks it again and again all over the place saying that that was a sacrifice, that was a substitution, that was just like Judah trying to take the place of his brother Benjamin. And that's the story that we run to. This story reminds us of, of the bigger story, that even though everything seems to be falling apart in our life, we can trust that God is at work. We can trust the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And, and what I want you to see here, there's, there are two parts of this, Right? There's you and me trusting the sacrifice of Jesus, but what does that do? That refines us into being a sacrifice ourselves. Romans 12.1 says it this way. It says, because of God's mercy, in Romans 12.1, that's, that's chapter 12, right? So there's 11 chapters in Romans 
talking about the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. So that it comes to a head in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So because Jesus sacrificed for you, you be a sacrifice. You go take the place of the little brother Benjamin or whoever it is that God brings across your path. You be a sacrifice for them. And we don't often have uh, the opportunity to be a physical sacrifice, not in our everyday life. Some of you as soldiers or policemen have that opportunity to offer your bodies in the place of others. But often what it means is offering our preferences, right? Often it means offering our interests, giving away those little corners of security and peace that we're holding on to. Because you see, to take it back to the orphan idea, take it back to the feasting idea, if when something's offered to you, you're like, I'm so desperate, I got to grab this, I can't, I can't let go, right? You're not, you're not being a sacrifice. But if you know that Jesus has given everything for you, that's going to allow you to loosen your grip on this world and on the blessings that God has given you so that you can give yourself your resources, your time, your energy, your emotions, your preferences. You can begin to give those things as a sacrifice to others. So that's what we see, again, pictured in the story with Judah, but it calls on us to live in the same way. And this brings us to this beautiful ending. I'm going to introduce this just the beginning of chapter 45, and we'll come back to it next week. This is such an important part of the story. I think we need to kind of hit it twice. Um, But this amazing sacrifice that Judah is willing to make, this brings Joseph again to the point of tears. So in Genesis 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wanted all the Egyptians to leave. He wanted some private time with his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. He is crying loud. He is screaming, right? Because they've passed the test. Because he's been testing them. He's been refining them. As I said at the beginning, this testing and refining that we go through, it not, it not only shows us who we are, but it helps us to get there. And that's what I, I hope you see. Whatever you're going through in your life right now, God can use those things for good, as it says in Romans 8.28. Because he loves you, and he's called you according to his purpose. And if you begin to doubt that, Romans 8.29 says, hey, remember, he's the one that chose you. He, he adopted you. Like he looked down at you and said, I want you. I want you in my family. And he grabbed hold of you and he's now conforming you to the image of his son. He's refining your character and my character so that Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. He's screaming and crying. Verse three, as Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence, right? <laughs> Just like in shock. Maybe he like took off the cobra hat, you know, wiped the makeup off or whatever. We're not sure exactly how the details unroll, but he's like, it's me, it's me, right? I'm Joseph. And they're just stunned. They're absolutely stunned. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, right? You are guilty, by the way. But he says in verse 5, But now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So 
again, here's the way grace and guilt works. Grace doesn't say the guilt doesn't exist, but it deals with the guilt. He's like, you, you sold me here. Yeah, you are guilty, but don't be distressed because God is up to something bigger. You sold me, but God sent me. And what I want us to see is, again, we've, we've you know, titled this whole series. We've said this is about God's purposes in a dysfunctional world. There are people in your life who have sold you out, right? Evil sold you, but God sent you. And the trick for us of living by faith is recognizing, yeah, this, this is evil. This person that hurt me, that is evil and that is wrong. But God is so big, he can turn that evil on its head. One of the most amazing verses in the New Testament is in the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. And what he says is these evil men killed Jesus, but that was a, a part of God's bigger plan. So the greatest evil that's ever happened, God is sovereign over that. And I don't fully understand how all those things work together. And I'd be happy to talk to you or one of our other pastors or elders would be happy to talk to you if you're going through a hardship right now. I don't know that we'll really be able to explain all that. All, all I know is we can say, yeah, evil is really evil, but God is so big. He can use even that evil to refine you, to, to change you, to make you into the kind of person that can spend yourself to give grace to others. And the heart of this is trusting that God is good, trusting that he loves you. And that's what Joseph is learning more and more. Hopefully that's what we're learning. Evil, evil sold me, but God sent me, and I'm here for a purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us, and we do pray that you would continue to refine our character. And again, we admit, Lord, we, we don't want to go through the pain. When we think about the refining of gold, we don't, we don't want a furnace. We don't want electric shock. We don't want acid. We don't want these difficult and painful things, but we do pray that you would give us the grace to see that you are good and that we can trust you in the midst of the trials and the tests that we're going through. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.